0: Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. So Melissa and I have had a lot of Bauman family activity over the summer. It started with my officiating. The wedding of a niece in Massachusetts, which, as you know, creates an opportunity for family reunion, champagne toasts and all. And This led to a trip to Fort Myers to celebrate my father's 97th birthday, who is still in remarkably good shape, still even driving, although we talk about that every time we get together. One of my brothers lives near him, as does his daughter and three grandchildren, the newest of which Melissa and I were pleased to meet for the first time during that visit. And just a week or two ago, my other brother and his wife came and stayed with us for a few days. So this is way more family stuff than normal for us, but but honestly, it's been rather nice. And of course we get to see our children and grandchildren all of the time since after college both Luke and Stephanie stuck around the city to fashion their lives. All of this was on my mind as I read the gospel text assigned for today and I discovered that uh, rather than continuing in my summer celebrating mode on the first Sunday after Labor Day, I read that I should hate my father and my mother and my wife and my children and my brothers and sisters if I had any, even life itself. I'm betting that most of you, if given a choice, would just as soon linger in summertime mode, wanting to ring out a few more days or weeks of diverting activity Filled with decisions no more demanding than uh, where to have dinner tonight or whether to have a mint chip or butter pecan ice cream cone. I recommend both, by the way. (laughs) Yet here we are pushed to pondering what theologians refer to as the cost of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. And from the sound of it, this is the opposite of summertime sentimental. Checking my records, I noted that in the lectionary cycle, that, in, that is how the scriptures assigned are assigned, as in this year, this scripture was read the Sunday after Labor Day in 2001, on September 9th. you will remember what happened two days later on a spectacularly beautiful Tuesday morning on September 11th. Summertime sentimental, if it ever had a chance of lingering in 2001, came to a horrifyingly abrupt end on that day. Of course, life is fickle like that, isn't it? One day you're giddy with your full of champagne and the next day the sky falls down. I know that sounds like an awful downer for the first Sunday after Labor Day when everyone wants the good times to roll on just a little bit longer. But with our infamous memorial date less than 72 hours ahead, maybe sobering up isn't such a bad idea. I mean, we'd all have to agree that 18 years later the world has become a much more complicated place and we Americans have some pretty important decisions in front of us that still partially emanate as a response to that terrible day. 18 years later, and that event seems the marker for how the 21st century would evolve. Alas. Still, you know, as I thought about all of this, what came up for me was how grateful I am. How very, very grateful. I have wonderful friends. I live in a magnificent, if noisy, and congested city. I'm supported by a loving family. I worship in a glorious spiritual home and share vital community with talented, committed, and generous faith siblings who attempt to follow a difficult but truthful path in the world. Things aren't perfect, no, but even so, gratitude and joyful reunion are the feelings I'm having this morning, being here among you. So here we are in this snapshot moment of our lives, drawn together again, representing a variety of mixed motives and emotions, each of us having brought along a sidecar full of personal baggage that we packed up ourselves. We would-be followers of Jesus have plopped ourselves into our seats on this eighth day of September 2019 in the middle of one of the most popular cities on the planet. By the way, did you know that New York is like number five or six in the most popular cities on the planet? We've gathered to Offer words and songs of praise and to hear what God might say to us from out of the ancient texts. I'm intrigued by how the gospel lesson began this morning. Now, large crowds were traveling with him. I don't know if we constitute a crowd exactly, But I take the text to mean that by this point in his ministry, Jesus had developed quite a following. He had created a stir, you know, developed buzz and whatnot. He'd been gaining in popularity. Makes me think he must have had a popular message, amazing grace and all that. I mean, that's how it works, right? we, we've talked about this before. I talk about it quite a bit, actually. The, the trick is to figure out what the people want and then give it to them, right? I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. Do that and you'll get the crowds and the followers and the large audience and the celebrity notoriety. Look to our current crop of politicians. They can seem prone to multiple personality disorder as they twist into pretzel shapes while accommodating themselves to those whose votes they want and need. Well, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. It won't be long from this point forward that he passes through the gates of Jerusalem as the conquering hero on the day we call Palm Sunday, friends clinking their champagne glasses in celebration of his imminent triumph. Of course, a few days later, the sky falls down on him, Life's fickle like that. But at this moment, he's reaching his peak with his biggest crowd, and he pulls out his cost of discipleship speech. And I want to ask, where's his copy editor and handlers? Where's his marketing chieftain? He's a smart guy, so doesn't he know enough to give the people what they want? And he follows it up by saying that whoever does not carry a cross and follow him cannot truly be his friend. I guess he doesn't really want all that many friends then is what I arrive at. He's a pretty confusing character, doesn't follow the typical script. Surely whatever the people think they want has nothing whatsoever to do with hating every important person in their lives. Same could be said of every subsequent generation right up to this present one, right up to us, even me. In fact, you've got to wonder if it wasn't just this sort of statement that twisted his popularity into its opposite during the last week of his life. Up to a point, he was extremely compelling. He was a great storyteller. But then he had to wreck his advantage by saying things that just went too far. Thank you very much. Or crossed the wrong people, one time too many. But after his death, and continuing year after year after year, attentive people discovered something crucial about his witness Jesus was never motivated by desire for some personal advantage. He was genuinely and uniquely motivated by the needs of the people around him. By the deepest needs they didn't even know they had. From start to finish, Jesus was relentless in his commitment to the things that matter most. And chief among these were matters of love and justice. The things that matter most. Imagine if you woke up every morning with this prayer on your lips. God, help me to stay focused on the things that matter most today? Imagine if you develop that discipline day in and day out. How do you imagine your lives might change? He constantly yanked people, well-meaning people, even those who came out to hear him Out of their complacency, he was on a mission to awaken the better angels of their nature and more to literally help them evolve into something closer to the very heart of God. And he knew instinctively this would not be easy and might very well cost him his life. So Jesus walked the razor's edge and spoke the truth. And the truth was that above all other commitments, One was paramount, and here we should probably clear up a problem translating an ancient language into the modern. The word hate in this passage is not really our emotionally laden word for personal disgust, but a Semitic idiom that expresses detachment, freedom from undue regard. The phrase is hyperbole concerning relative allegiances, not aggressive loathing as in, I hate you, not that. In this sense, Jesus simply states the obvious. If the God of love and justice is, if the God of love and justice is, then nothing else can supplant this love and justice. This would be a logical impossibility, even if we wished something other than the God of love and justice was the most important truth or pretended or behaved as though something else mattered more. You know, claiming the moon is made of great green cheese, even intensely believing it, would not change the geological facts. Jesus is always laying bare the real facts. Now this is very hard to hear in our culture today especially. I got to thinking about this this week. In today's cluttered environment of fake news, so-called, and relentless lying, Jesus was a truth-teller. Truth was his number one methodology for communicating. Wow! How, what a novel idea! Remember how he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So he tells his admirers that if they wish to follow along the graceful path of love and justice they had better know the real deal and the real deal was going to cost them something, something important. It would make demands upon their lives and Perhaps they should know that before signing up. He's a truth teller. And he doesn't sentimentalize its ramifications. Doesn't dress it up, as it were, to make it more palatable. And by the way, this creates a significant dilemma for the preacher. I can tell you that experience reveals people generally, generally, (laughs) they like their truths very palatable. They like them palatable, tasty, served creatively with an interesting sauce and a great dessert in a warm atmosphere in timely fashion by friendly people. They like their truths to go down easy, causing no indigestion. And they like to be entertained in the meantime. Carrying this metaphor a bit further, like most preachers, I would like to be known as a pretty good chef who knows how to serve up a wonderful meal that people will love and then tell their friends about it so they might try the cuisine at Bistro Christ Church. But that's not how my mentor did it. People could ultimately silence him, but they could not silence his truth about love and justice because if something is true, it never goes away. Truth stands always, always. The great Indian author and close associate of Mahatma Gandhi, Rabindranath Tagore, wrote, I, this quote has been an important quote for me my entire adult life. I first read it in, I don't know, when I was 18 or 19 years old. Truth comes as conqueror only to those who have lost the art of receiving it as a friend. Truth comes as conqueror only to those who have lost the art of receiving it as a friend. Have you ever been conquered by a truth you failed to receive as a friend? I have. I have. Jesus invites us into truth as a beloved friend might, who loves us more than we love ourselves. has anyone ever said to you I love you so much I'm going to tell you the truth I love you so much I'm going to tell you the truth and I can tell you that if that is sincerely shared and sincerely received it is the start of a profound, transforming moment. Truth shared and received. It's powerful stuff. I would tell you that in the world, in the world of personal transformation, there is nothing more powerful than that. The Danish philosopher Sorn Kierkegaard complained about the petty preachers of his day who preached artistic sermons whereby, quote, Jesus obtained admirers rather than followers. Friends, here's the thing. I do not want to be a petty preacher. And I'm counting on the fact that at least some of you present don't want to be simply admirers of Jesus, but actual followers, actual followers. So, as the fall season advances, let's take hands and help each other live into the truth of our God of love and justice. And let's do this with gratitude for the gift we are to one another. Gratitude abounds.